Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, what exactly is apologetics and is there a right way to do it? Uh, Ken, you're going to be talking about uh, that topic. It's no surprise to listeners to this podcast that you will be doing so, but we have people that come along at different stages, and it's always good to review. And I, for one, always appreciate hearing uh, the ins and outs of apologetics. So looking forward to it. Yeah, what we're going to be covering the next uh, two programs is uh, looking at that field of apologetics. And many people, Joe and Dave, are unaware that um, in the ancient world, in the medieval Christian world, uh, apologetics was viewed as a branch of theology. And, um, you know, today you have people doing apologetics kind of from different angles. Uh, RTB does it from a science angle, primarily, not exclusively, but you have other people in philosophy like myself and uh, C.S. Lewis in literature, etc. So I thought it would be nice to kind of cover a, a general presentation of, of what Christian apologetics is all about. And then in our next program, we kind of focus on the uniqueness of the RTB apologetic. Terrific. Okay, so this is part one of two. Yeah. Well, let me begin by, if apologetics means to give a reasoned defense of the Christian faith, I think we probably need to begin at square one, and that is asking, well, what is what is it that we're defending? What, what do you mean by Christianity? And uh, that's a challenging idea, because there are many different features uh, to the Christian faith. I like what Alistair McGrath says about this in his introduction to Christianity. He offers a definition of Christianity, and he makes three points. He says that Christianity is, first, a set of beliefs, two, a collection of values, and three, a way of life. And I, I like that way, I like that description, and I'd like to say a bit more uh, about those kinds of elements. Notice, for example, that he begins with a set of beliefs, then moves to the collection of values, and then, number three, a way of life. I think the order of that is really very important because, for example, today's Judaism, and of course Christianity has a, a deep connection to Judaism, but modern Judaism may be may, somewhat different than traditional Judaism, I think uh, I think Judaism would say that uh, the collection of values uh, takes precedent over a set of beliefs. And, and they might even say this, they might even say, and again, I'm speaking of uh, contemporary Judaism, contemporary Judaism would say the first issue is where you belong. Uh, then you would look at values, and then and only then would you look at beliefs. And that that always surprises me a bit, but I like to let our listeners know that when you study the religions of the world, they change, they evolve. Uh, Judaism, modern Judaism, is, I think, changed somewhat in that kind of context. But there is, a, I, I think, a greater emphasis 
in Judaism on how you behave or your your moral views, whereas Christianity, it seems to me, it has a, a unique focus on what you believe. Joe, Dave, want to say anything there? Do you, do you see that as a contrast, as uh, important? What do you think? I like it a lot. It um, There's a diagram that I've used in the past that really fits very well with this sequence that you've presented here. The diagram is uh, several concentric circles, hmm. and the inner circle represents reality, What what's true, what's, what's yeah. really present in the world in which we live. And the next circle outside of that represents this our beliefs about that reality yeah. so what do we believe what you know do we believe that that reality includes god for instance or is it or what is it you know we we people have all kinds of different beliefs about some of course modern day uh, postmodernism says we can't know what's in that inner circle and so you just kind of make up your beliefs whatever Right. And the, the third circle outside of that, of course, is the values that are dependent on those beliefs. And then, of course, the final circle is how do you live your life? Do you live according to those values or do you do you ignore those values? Do you? So I think it fits very perfectly with this. These three uh, or multiple inner uh, uh, concentric circles. And gives the same idea, and I so I like this presentation quite well. Yeah, let's uh, let's look at that uh, one more time. A set of beliefs, a collection of values, a way of life. Joe, uh, Dave, you've articulated it well. There are beliefs that we have about the nature of reality. There are beliefs we have about God, about Christ, about salvation, uh, etc. Um, I think there, too, that a set of beliefs, we, we could think about the Christian worldview, and again, a worldview could be described as a, uh, a set of beliefs in the sense that I have a cluster of beliefs. Again, my view of God, my view of the, the created world, uh, my view of knowledge, my view of values. So you could you could organize it that way. Another way of thinking about it is you could look at it in terms of, let's say, the creedal statements. Um, uh, maybe thinking again worldviewishly, uh, the Christian worldview would fall would uh, involve a sequence of four events: creation followed by the fall, Adam and Eve misusing their freedom, uh, human beings suffering uh, alienation from God because of that fallen condition, that rebellion, so to speak. So creation, fall. Then redemption, Christ comes into the world. Uh, human beings are saved. Uh, they are reconciled to God by Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Um, uh, then we would have consummation. Uh, awaiting the second coming, awaiting the eternal state. So Christianity has a lot of a lot of beliefs. It also has very central beliefs, um, kind of looking at essential ideas, and this will come out in some of the passages of Scripture that we'll look at. Um, doctrines like the Trinity, 
the Trinity makes Christianity unique. Uh, Trinitarian monotheism, very different than a Unitarian monotheism that we would find in both Judaism, traditional Judaism, uh, and in Islam. So the Trinity would be a unique feature. Uh, Another one, of course, in extension with the Trinity would be the Incarnation. Last night I was watching a video uh, about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, his Middle Earth ideas and uh, his books, um, uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And what I I found really interesting is this kind of literature, when you have myths and legends, you, you talk about these great miracles that have happened, these extraordinary events that have happened uh, in in Tolkien's writings and C.S. Lewis and in all of literature. And I don't know who said it, but I heard it and I I thought it was very powerful that uh, the incarnation, the idea that the second person of the Trinity took to himself a human nature and became man, that that the God-man came to earth that's a greater truth than anything that we find in fiction. So these are these are powerful truths. Now, of course, Christianity isn't just a set of beliefs. It's also a collection of values. What would be Christian values? Well, um, God created the world, and he created human beings in his image. Therefore, humans bear the imago Dei, Latin for the image of God. And, and therefore, people uh, have dignity. They, they have value. Uh, they have specific worth. And the way we treat them, the way we treat our fellow human beings, is in some respect the way we treat God. If we're to mistreat people in God's image, in a sense, we're disrespecting uh, God. And uh, therefore, you see in the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, that particularly the second five, not lying, not stealing, um, being faithful to your your vows, etc. That would be that collection of values. And then a way of life, um, you know, a, a way of living day to day in terms of our beliefs. So that's kind of the, the foundation for what is Christianity. Now let's move to this issue of uh, apologetics. Uh, Apologia or apologia is the New Testament Greek word. And I think the word apologetics appears at least twice in the New Testament. Um, And I'd like to, again, talk about what does it mean to, what does it mean to uh, give a reasoned defense and here in Jude 3, I think we we see what is being communicated. It says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. That's Jude 3. Uh, my friend, my mentor, my old boss, Walter Martin, on his automobile, uh, the bla- the back license plate had on there Jude three. Mm. So whenever I think about this passage, I think about Walter Martin. Um, in my view, Walter was kind of the general pattern of Christian apologetics, right? Uh, I'm thinking Hugh Ross might be more the general Bradley, 
if you think of the World War II generals, you know, you've got this very outspoken uh, Patton. You have then Bradley, who is very competent, but a little more on the reserve side. And so uh, apologists sometimes have uh, very differing uh, demeanors. But let me just take apart this passage a little bit. Um, Jude says that we we should uh, contend for the faith. That is, uh, stand up for the faith. That is to to defend for it. Uh, it is to make a claim, to to stake a claim about the about the nature of Christianity. And then it then it says something I think very significant. It says, "I urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people." Uh, that is, we should be very suspicious of uh, philosophies of life, religious traditions that come along and say, uh, well, we actually have a we actually have a new word. We have a new perspective. Uh, or there's things in your faith that are not complete. It needs to be added to. And here again, um, Jude says, no, uh, we need to contend for the faith because it has been given to God's people once and for all. And again, I think of uh, I think of people who make claims that challenge that. Uh, let me spe- be specific uh, with two religious groups. Uh, the religion of Islam comes along and says, "You know what? Uh, Judaism and Christianity are pretty good as far as they go." The problem, however, with Judaism and Christianity is that there, those biblical traditions, uh, the Torah with uh, Judaism or the Tanakh, the, the entire Hebrew Bible, and then the New Testament with Christianity, it's been corrupted. So the only way to really know who God is, is to adopt a new book. And this book uh, takes precedence over the previous books. I could say something quite similar to the the modern religion that comes out of the 19th century, the contemporary religion of the Latter-day Saints or Mormonism. Joseph Smith comes along and says, look, uh, yeah, this is, this is the religion of Jesus Christ, but it has uh, been uh, it has been hijacked. It's been hijacked by uh, by Catholic thinking by by unbiblical ideas, and therefore uh, the Old and New Testament need a, a further interpretation that comes in the Book of Mormon. Interestingly, guys, uh, when I talk with Mormon um, missionaries, I uh, begin the discussion and I say, I want to describe a religion for you, and I want you to tell me which one it is. So I begin to communicate what I've just said. That is, you know, the biblical texts have been corrupted. We need a new prophet. We we need another book that will guide us. Uh, And of course, uh, I ask, well, what religion am I talking about? And they'll say, well, you're you're obviously referring to us, uh, Latter-day Saints. I say, not necessarily. It could also be Islam. And, you know... They tend to blink. And in my opinion, it's not often that people who uh, 
are in competing religions, uh, who are in sects, who are in cults, what I would call counterfeit religions. It's not often that they blink. There's kind of a, there's a script that you follow and uh, they stop there. So let, let me pause a bit. Uh, Dave, Joe comments about Jude 3. Well, I, the, the one thing that in addition to the, the urging of our contending for the faith is the idea that the faith that he's referring to is the one once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So that kind of counters in the same way that you just described these new things that come along, these new perspectives, yeah. that what we're contending for is the faith that was delivered to the disciples, to the apostles, to Paul, uh, to those who wrote the New Testament, not some thing made up in modern day or or in in, in present day, there's a lot of credence given to these other gospels, the gospel of Thomas or things of those nature. And I think that uh, this is, Jude is not referring to that. So these kind of alternative religions mentioned the Gnostics in the ancient, in the ancient world, um, Gnostics made the claim that there were alternative gospels, not, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there were these other kind of mystical Gospels, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, etc. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ken, I have a question. Somebody uh, might be taking a, a class at a university on the Bible, and they won't get uh, uh, conservative evangelical uh, teaching on necessarily at a public university. But anyway, they might hear from that professor that uh, Christianity has developed its doctrine over time. It took councils to hammer these things out. In fact, we didn't even have a Bible until much later. So uh, that statement there, once for all delivered to the saints, doesn't mean exactly what uh, they would say it means. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question, and I and I think a fair question, and and I would agree that. Uh, there were great truth claims that Jesus proclaimed to his disciples, uh, his teaching. Um, you know, the, the New Testament was didn't appear out of nowhere. Uh, the gospel message, the good news that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, was that that first preached word that people should turn from their sins and, and believe in the Lord. Uh, but there was a core teaching that was there. And, uh, of course, as the apostles aged, they realized that uh, uh, not only were they called by the Holy Spirit to produce the biblical text, but this would be a text uh, on par with the Old Testament. And it would be a text uh, that would, would continue to, to endure. So I don't think we have to reject the idea. I mean... Uh, I believe that the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation, the doctrine of the Atonement, uh, Resurrection, Second Coming, I think those were in the teachings of the original apostles. They were then set forth uh, in more written form in the New Testament. Um, uh, but the implications of them, Joe, did need to be hammered out. What 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 is it? Uh, 
the Bible seems to indicate that Jesus had both human qualities and divine qualities. Well, how are we to fit that together? Um, another idea, uh, uh, Christianity seems to be a branch of Judaism initially, um, so it's monotheistic. But wait a second, when you open up the scriptures, you then begin to see that there are three, there is a triad of personalities. So, no, I think all of the great truths of Christianity were clearly given initially to God's people, to the church, uh, but the implications of those took time. Good. Let me okay, another. Just one comment. Yeah. When I was a fairly young Christian, I uh, was spending quite a bit of time studying the scriptures, becoming familiar with, you know, both the letters as well as the gospels themselves. And uh, then I became aware of this, uh, it, the, this issue of these other gospels. And, and so I was just very curious, what, what, you know, why don't we include them? What are they like? What? And so I managed to find a book that collected all of these various Gospels together. And uh, I started reading it with the idea of, you know, trying to discern how, how does one decide whether those should be included in the New Testament or not? Well, after reading through them, I, I just came away thinking, oh, my, uh, they're just kind of empty. I mean, even some of the letters that were written, I've forgotten by Clement or Origen or somebody to various churches in a sort of similar vein that Paul would write and, and exhort the churches. Even they lacked kind of an authority or they lacked a, a, a charisma, as it were. And it, to me, even though I was just a young Christian, I was familiar enough with the writings of the New Testament to be able to see very quickly that there was no merit in reading these other Gospels. Yeah, I, and I think that, uh, I think when we look at this, uh, you know, the the position of Gnosticism, and to, just to say a few words about it, uh, the word Gnosis is, uh, means knowledge. And so this particular heresy known as Gnosticism um, uh it comes forth in the idea that uh, matter is evil and spirit is good. And so salvation is somehow the soul, the immaterial, the non-physical soul would escape the body. So the again, the idea of uh, matter being evil, well, if that were true, what would that do to creation? What it would do to the incarnation? What would it do to the resurrection? What would it do to science uh, if matter is evil? Um, and so Gnosticism was a, a heresy, and these Gospels appeared very late. I agree with you, Dave. Not only are they not compatible in kind of giving us a consistency with the uh, what we might call the canonical Gospels, but they come very late, long after the apostles uh, were dead. Now, in light of all of that, let's look at just a couple more passages that kind of lay out the implications, if you will, of uh, apologetics. Another key passage is 2 Corinthians 10.5. Uh, 
where now the Apostle Paul says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul there emphasizing the idea, we don't demolish people, we engage the ideas, we attack uh, the ideas. Uh, apologetics does involve reasoning and rationality and, and making arguments. But again, for many of us who are, you know, us cerebral types who like to argue, I remember my 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 mother in particular saying that I had an argumentative temperament as a child. Some people think I've carried that over to adulthood. Um, but I think what, what Paul here is saying is remember that you're trying to persuade people of truth, not attacking the individuals, uh, but but critiquing uh, the arguments. A further passage that I want to say something about is um, Paul's action. So we heard Paul there in 2 Corinthians uh, talking about uh arguments, demolishing arguments in 2 Corinthians 10.5. But here is, uh, here's what Luke says about Paul. So now Luke, who was an associate of Paul, Luke's an interesting person. Uh, he is, what we know about him is that he's not a Hebrew, he's not a Jew. Uh, he was a doctor, and he had a close association with the Apostle Paul. Let me say uh, that that brings up some interesting ideas. Why would the Gospels be written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, Matthew might make pretty good sense because he was one of the original 12. And John fits well if, it, if it's uh, the beloved John, and there are there are multiple Johns in within Hurley Christianity, but it would make sense that the Gospels would be uh, authored. They'd be actually be written by people who were the first presenters. But then those middle, uh, okay, I can accept Matthew and John because they were original apostles, but what about Mark and Luke? Mark wasn't an original, and, and Luke clearly was not. He wasn't even a Hebrew. He was a Gentile. But Christian tradition says that the Gospel of Mark, by and large, is the talking points of Peter. Hmm. Uh, the, the primitive early part of the Gospel of Mark reflected the presentation of Peter, who was not only one of the original 12, but he was in the inner circle, right? Peter and, and uh, John, etc. Uh, and then Luke. Why would Luke be? Why would Luke uh, take it upon himself to write about the great events of Jesus Christ? Well, because he's closely associated with Paul. So the Gospels reflect primitive or apostolic Christianity. We don't need Joseph Smith to come along to give us a new revelation. We don't need Muhammad to give us a new revelation. You know, we have it there. And then this is what Luke says about Paul, kind of a, a snapshot of the Apostle Paul, who was uh, who was originally Saul, who was originally a uh, a dedicated rabbi, comes along and counters Christianity. And he says, "Wow, that they're perverting the truth." Uh, is even willing to uh, persecute, uh, even 
even approve of the uh, execution of Christians. But of course, he then has he has his own experience where he sees the risen Lord. Well, this is this is no longer Saul who was breathing threats against the church. This is now the converted the apostle Paul, the follower of Jesus, wrote thirteen of the books. Acts seventeen two through four. It says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, what's the... Uh, here you have the Apostle Paul. He walks into the synagogue. Uh, he's very at home there. He knows uh, this is uh, this is this is Judaism, uh, and he presents an explanation of the Hebrew scriptures in light of the revelation of Jesus. And notice what happens after Paul presents. Uh, he presents. He explains. He offers a case for the Messiah. Notice what it says next. It says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So the gospel's presented and the Holy Spirit is working in the life of people uh, and and they're persuaded. Not all of them, uh, but a, a good number of them, in fact, are persuaded. Now in, now, in light of that, and in defining apologetics, this next passage is kind of... Uh, it, it it's kind of what is the word I'm looking for here? It is uh, uh, it is the, the very definition uh, of apologetics uh, in a in how it's to be done, and it's found in First Peter three fifteen, which um, all people who are interested in apologetics know the passage. Uh, here, Peter uh, giving us our our marching orders, if you will. Peter says, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Well, there's a there's a lot there, um, you know, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give everyone an answer, but, but do it with uh, gentleness and respect. Well, um, that's that's kind of that foundational uh, idea of apologetics that we are to uh, we're to give a reasoned defense and uh, what what does that what does that ultimately involve? I like to say um, that it involves four things. So so the word I was looking for is mandate. If First Peter three fifteen is our apologetic mandate. What would that apologetic look like? I would I would kind of dissect. I'd pull out four things. One, that we're to present and clarify the central truth claims of Christianity. Joe and Dave, in the world in which we live today, it's it's probably different than the world we lived in uh, fifty to a hundred years ago. I think uh, if we think about the American culture. 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, I think the average American probably had a clearer understanding of Christianity. 
they may not have believed it, but they grew up uh, uh, in a church or around a church. They were uh, they they lived their life with Christian values, or at least them being exhibited. But today, you never know, and so it's important to present and clarify the central claims of Christianity. We're back to Alistair McGrath, a set of beliefs, a collection of values, a way of life. I think a second part of that fourfold defense is offering clear and compelling positive evidence for accepting the Christian faith. Okay, so what, what evidence do I have? Well, I can look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can look at the evidence for Jesus being uh, fulfilling the predictions concerning the coming of the Messiah. I can uh, I can look at uh, the the character of the person of Jesus Christ. So one, clarifying the truth claims. Two, presenting evidence, positive evidence for the acceptance of, or for the acceptance of Christianity. Third, answering people's questions and objections concerning the faith. I remember uh, years ago working at the Christian Research Institute, and uh, I worked for the Bible Answer Man. That's quite a title, by the way, the Bible Answer Man. I was always uncomfortable with it, I'm not sure that there ever has been a true Bible answer man, but if there was, it was Walter Martin. I, re I remember working with him, and uh, he'd be in the studio. It uh, wasn't quite as large as the studio we have here at RTB. It was a bit smaller. But I remember the first time I looked through the control window, and here's Walter Martin sitting at a desk, and all he has is his Bible. No computer doesn't have a set of commentaries, doesn't have a collection of volumes. It's just Walter Martin sometimes sitting there with his feet up because uh, <laughs> he had diabetes and he had circulation problems near the end of his life. Uh, and he just have his open Bible. And I'm like, uh, so when I started doing it, there were others who did it before me. Craig Hawkins, my old friend, uh, did it uh, with Walter. And then uh, later... Uh, there were others uh, like myself and uh, uh, Rob Bowman, uh, and we would do it as kind of a team. We'd have three guys, and I felt a little bit more comfortable in that context because I thought, well, if I don't know the answer, maybe Rob will, and if Rob and I don't know the answer, maybe uh, Paul Carden will. But, you know, it really is important to to answer people's questions, to give them an opportunity and say, well, what is it what is it that you'd like to ask about uh, Christianity and to offer answers to those objections? that's that's a critical part of apologetics. Another feature, right? Now looking again, if I could summarize the first three, present and clarify the truth claims, offer evidence, then attempt to answer people's question. and and the fourth one is one that um, really kind of uh, shows us the importance of apologetics, provide a, a penetrating critique and refutation of alternative non-Christian systems of thought. That is, it's one thing to say Christianity has a lot going for it, or it's one thing to say Christianity makes truth claims and it seems pretty coherent, it seems to fit, 
But then in a logical context, hey, you've got counterclaims. You know, your claim may look good, but then when we bring in the alternatives, when we look at a a secular perspective like naturalism, or we look at competing religious claims like Hinduism and Buddhism, well, you not only have an obligation to support your beliefs in Christianity, but you also have a, an obligation to respond to the best criticisms from the outside. And I think in saying all of that, that's a pretty daunting, that's a pretty daunting task uh, to, to do that. But I think I think uh, I think that apologetics needs to be done in community. Um, that is, there are people like Dave Rockstad here who has a PhD in physics. Dave, I don't know how you, uh, I don't know how you finished that degree. Uh, I had one physics class, and I thought, okay, I. I remember as a senior, and I've shared this many times, my uh, advisor said, Ken, you need to take a hard science. And I said, uh, I thought they were all hard. Uh, <laughs> he, of course, was meaning uh, physics uh, rather than one of the other sciences. But I think apologetics does need to be done in, in community. Um, you know, there is an apologetic that attempts to respond to scientific challenges. Then there is another apologetic that responds to questions about the biblical text, uh, about the reliability uh, of the Bible. And then a whole nother apologetic challenge comes in the world's religions. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's important to engage in the apologetic enterprise in a community. And I think RTB has built that community. Um, we have people. We have many people who have uh, advanced science degrees. But as the scholar community here, and, I, and I'm not speaking of the staff scholars. We have a small uh, number of staff scholars. But even there, you have philosophers, you have theologians, you have a number of scientists. And so apologetics is not an easy thing, but I think that First Peter three is a is a powerful one. Mm. Jump in there, tell me what you think so far, Joe and Dave. Yeah, well, I appreciate the fact that you laid it out in four uh, points, a fourfold defense of the faith, um, and started number one with presenting and clarifying the central truth claims of Christianity. Uh, that ties back to something you said at the very beginning that uh, apologetics has been thought of historically as a branch of theology. Uh, and here we need to know what the theology is uh, that we're defending. Uh, so I, I appreciate the fact that you put that there first. What are the central truth claims of Christianity? Uh, who is God? Uh, what's his nature? Who is Christ? And so on. Uh, I wonder if you might comment on whether a central truth claim involves one's view of the Bible. Uh, does it have to be, do we have to hold to the Bible's inherency as one of the central truth claims of the faith? I know that's a whole program in and of itself, but yeah, somebody may be wondering that. No, it's a it's a very important question. As you noted, it's uh, it's a broad question. I mean, how do we how did we decide what the essentials are? Well, in in a sense, the 
the scriptures are are the are there are authority and uh if there are if they are authoritative in terms of giving us these great uh biblical truths these great truths of about god about christ about salvation etc uh then our authority has to be credible uh could a person could a person be a christian and and believe that maybe there are minor errors in the bible or you know m- maybe there are miss maybe there are copying errors or or maybe the apostles got most of it right but not all of it right well um i'm troubled by the idea that a revelation that's given from god that's inspired by the holy spirit would somehow end up being uneven where there would be errors in it but I, I think that historic Christianity would agree that to become a Christian, to be redeemed by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, one doesn't necessarily have to believe in biblical inerrancy. Uh, You could hold to the basic reliability of the Bible without arguing that there is absolutely no error in it. But when we look at other doctrines, it, it, you know, it it seems to me that to believe that uh, to believe that you could have some other savior that uh, that seems to be antithetical to Christianity, or to have uh, beliefs about God, you know, the Mormons believe that there are three different gods, uh, tritheism. Uh, what about other groups like Jehovah's Witnesses? Well. Uh, they believe that the Bible's inerrant, but they don't believe that uh, that Christ is the second person of the Trinity. They reject the Trinity. They reject the deity of Christ. Uh, Joe and Dave, all of the cults, now that, that seems like a harsh word uh, today, but classically, at least uh, when I was learning uh, apologetics, a cult was a heretical sect. A, a It was a new religious movement that departed from classical Christianity. Uh, classical Christianity, again, being, being uh, seen in its foundation in Scripture, but being reflected in the creeds. Well, um, all of these cult groups, uh, and I'm going to distinguish them between the world's religion, but all of the cults groups... They, they deny two essential elements. They deny the Trinity, and they deny salvation by grace. And of course, if you deny the Trinity, then you have to deny the deity of Christ. And why is there that common element of uh, a denial of the Trinity and a denial of salvation by grace? Because they're connected. Um, we are saved by the grace that comes from the Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit, and so uh, that those are those are good questions, Joe. And I think we want to be careful. Uh, my view is I want to be as inclusive as I can. I do believe in what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. I think that you know his kind of uh, analogy that the that Christendom is made up of a a, a mansion with many rooms. But the essentials of the faith, kind of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, those kind of non-negotiable, well, that's that's found in the hallway. But then Lewis says you can't just live as a mere Christian. 
you do have to decide about these picky questions like uh, like the Bible and uh, bishops and baptism. So some some people are drawn to the Baptist door, the Baptist room. Others say no. Uh, I'm I I fit more in the Reformed or Presbyterian room. Others the Lutheran. Others say no. I think there's a a, a a larger room, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox tradition, but essentially you have kind of a foundational Christianity, and I think we ought to be as inclusive as we can. But there are some things, uh, you know, as as Jude alluded to, there are some things we have to contend. Um, I I. If there's a hill that I have to fight and die on, then I think it does have to involve those essentials, the Trinity, uh, the, the the nature of Jesus Christ, his humanity and his deity, his atoning work that Christ, uh, his life, death and resurrection have reconciled us with God. Now, we might have differing ideas uh, about exactly how that's played out. Uh, and there are models of the atonement, but to deny the death of Christ, it seems to me, would move us out. So life, death, and resurrection, and, and then foundational to all, uh, that we're saved by grace, that it's that it's not a matter of works. By the way, guys, um, you've heard me talk about Dennis Prager, who is a talk show host here in Los Angeles, been for uh, 40 years I've, I've been on his program uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, he had a program here in LA um, uh, called Religion on the Line. And Dennis, of course, is, is Jewish. He's not Orthodox Jew, but I would say he takes his Judaism seriously. Um, and I, I heard on uh, one lecture he gave, and I listened to him a lot because I see him as a public intellectual. I see him as an ally to the Christian worldview. I agree with him most of the time. Don't want to give away all my political views, but I, I like what he says about many controversial political topics. Uh, but in one of his most recent talks, he said uh, there is a difference. There's a major difference between Judaism and Christianity, as much as they have in common. And 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 Prager would say, look, I talk to these Christian uh, theologians, these Christian uh, pastors and priests, and I share a great deal in common. But there, but Prager says there is a real difference. In Judaism, you're going to uh, your salvation is going to be determined by by what you do morally. Um, and and it seems there was little view of you're saved by grace. So that that issue that I can't do anything to earn God's favor, God's favor is earned. Now, of course, I'm not saying that uh, good works are not important. Um, I like what uh, both Luther and Calvin, the two, two of the great Protestant uh, uh, representatives of the Protestant Reformation, Luther was kind of the father of the Reformation. I view Calvin as uh, maybe more one of the systematic theologians of the Protestant Reformation, again, another branch of Christendom. Uh, but I like what Luther and Calvin like to 
sorry, that faith alone saves. That is trusting in God, putting your confidence in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's what saves you. But while faith alone saves, uh, uh, faith is never alone. It's always uh, it's always co-joined with works of love and obedience. So there are differences there on on these kinds of issues uh, relating to apologetics. So, Joe, I hope that's a little bit helpful in terms of your question. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to tackle one more uh, one yeah. more. Just one further comment. I there's another scripture that I like a lot that uh, gives a similar message that the one uh, that you've quoted here recently, 2 Timothy 2, 25, 26. There Paul is speaking to, you know, an approved workman, uh, someone who is defending and contending for the faith. And it says he must gently reprove those who oppose him. Mm in the hope that God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So it it acknowledges that while we are contending for the faith, we have to do it gently and with respect, as Jude's, or uh, as the other passage says in 1 Peter. But, uh, but God is the one who is really granting the repentance. And then it says in the next verse, then they will come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, who is taking them captive to his will. Wow. Very, very powerful passage that gives insight into this process of contending for the faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that fits uh, so well with 1 Peter 3.15 and the other passages uh, that we've looked at. Well, before our time runs out, Joe and Dave, I'd like to touch briefly on, on two other ideas that, that fit well here. I think sometimes we're we're tempted to think that um, Christianity, the world in which we live, and the place that Christianity has in the world, maybe it's very different today than it was back in the Roman Empire. I mean, Christianity emerged in the first century. It started um, it started with the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, and he founded his church, and the fundamental belief was Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God. He is risen from the dead. He's the fulfillment uh, of the Savior predicted in the Old Testament. Um, But we're tempted to think, yeah, but Christianity emerged. It was successful. It grew rapidly. Uh, but aren't aren't there enemies of Christianity today? Aren't there challenges to Christianity today that are fundamentally different uh, than there was in the ancient world? Well, I, I guess I'm going to be a little equivocal and say yes and no. Um, yes, there are challenges today uh, that come in different ways. Uh, uh, you know the scientific challenges uh, are are different than uh, we, what we might find in the uh, ancient world, and there are different implications. Uh, Christians today, you know, address the world's religions in a way. So humanity seems the earth seems to be a smaller place today. But, you know, in a sense, it was also very similar. The, the apologetic challenges that come our way are, are very similar 
to the ancient world. So let me contrast uh, the the apologetic challenges in ancient Rome and today. And uh, since most of our listeners are Americans, but we could extend it to Europe, we could extend it to all parts of the globe. Well, what were the apologetic challenges in ancient Rome? Well, interestingly enough, religious pluralism, the gods of the Greco-Romans, uh, philosophical skepticism. Here I'm thinking of uh, Stoicism uh, and even, even other forms of uh, skeptical uh, Greek and Roman philosophy. Maybe, maybe you can't know the truth, right? Socrates was battling the sophists, so there was a lot of philosophical skepticism in the ancient world. Uh, and then moral relativism, um, the idea that the, that good changes from person to person. There's there's no objective kind of component. Well, if if that's the case in the ancient world of religious pluralism, philosophical skepticism, and moral relativism, I see those same things today. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a lot of religions in our world, but what about Buddhism? What about Hinduism? Uh, what about Confucianism? Um, what about the native religions, um, what we call folk religion? Do we have any philosophical skepticism today? Oh boy, there are many people who say, look, Christianity just cannot withstand the philosophical criticisms that we give. Uh, so important that we're able to respond philosophically. It's important we're able to respond to the challenges of the religions. And of course, uh, living today in, in what I would define as a postmodern, post-truth uh, culture, we have lots of people who say uh, morality is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, that may be wrong for you, but it may be right for me. So relativism as it relates to truth, nobody, nobody can know the ultimate truth, but maybe morality changes. So when we think about apologetics, I, yeah, there are some unique areas that are somewhat different than what was carried on but it but it seems like we're we're dealing in many ways with very similar ideas now one more point that i i want to uh, give and then we'll kind of in our next program i'd like to talk about some of the i'd like to talk i'd like to continue to talk about apologetics but kind of highlighting the unique RTB perspective as, as one part of that broad uh, enterprise of apologetics. Let me say one more word here about persuasion. I mean, if you're an apologist, and I think even if you're an evangelist, um, if you're an apostle, if you're a disciple, right, you would like to, uh, you would, you're in the business of persuasion. You would like to say, look, uh, I think I've got good reason to believe that Jesus is the is the Messiah. He is the Savior. That uh, Christianity is uh, the true religion. Um, so, how do I persuade people? Well, I like to make just a couple points uh, about that provocative topic. And and Dave, you you alluded to this earlier. There's there's a number of things I think uh, we would want to communicate. 
One of them is that sometimes arguments are person relative. That is, that is, I don't think I've ever come across an argument that is just a knockdown argument that everybody says, yeah, completely agree. Um, you know, I, for example, uh, yesterday I gave a presentation to the scholarly on some of the arguments that C.S. Lewis is, is known for. Um, and, you know, some of his arguments for me are very, very powerful and very persuasive, uh, like the moral argument or the argument from, from desire or the argument from reason. Those really echo for me. Other people here at RTB, I think about Fuzz Rana, a biochemist. I think about Hugh Ross, Fuzz Rana, the, the idea of the teleological arguments, the arguments from design, that the cell looks designed, that there's design in the universe. I think about Jeff Swearing and Hugh Ross, uh, astrophysicist, astronomer, you know, looking at the fine tuning in the universe. So arguments are not all the same. Uh, some people find some arguments for God or theism or apologetics uh, to be more uh, convincing maybe than, than other arguments. But I, I also think, uh, too, there are, there are modes of persuasion. Um, yeah, there's the logos. Uh, when the ancient Greek philosophers talked about persuasion, yeah, there are logical arguments, but logical arguments are not the only thing uh, that goes with persuasion. Uh, the ancient Greeks talked about uh, ethos. Uh, that is, if, if you're going to come and you're going to try to persuade me to adopt your religion or your philosophy, uh, I first have to trust your character. That's ethos. Are you a good person? Are you a reliable person? Can I trust that you'll give me a reliable message? Ethos. Uh, we've talked about logos. If you don't have logical arguments, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out. But they also talked about pathos, appealing to the author's sympathy, to, to imagination. I like this, uh, this, what Aristotle would have referred to as a, uh, a trinity of persuasion. I want to see, I want to sense that you have ethos, you have character. I, I want to know that you care deeply uh, about what, what people care about, the, the pathos. And then finally, uh, the logos. But I'd like to close with uh, really another point about persuasion. And that is, why are some persuaded and others not? I mean, I, I think there's some really good arguments uh, for for theism, that there, there is a God behind the universe, uh, an infinite, eternal uh, being who created this universe. I think there are lots of really good arguments, the cosmological argument, teleological, moral argument, the ontological argument, arguments from the resurrection, the person of Christ, all of these types, argument from beauty. But why are some persuaded and others are not persuaded? 
Well, that's sometimes a challenging idea. I come in on the point that I think God has to do something in a person's heart um, in order for them to be persuaded. Now, again, uh, Christian apologists disagree to what that amounts to. Does God woo us? Does uh, to, to to use a a middle knowledge reflection? Um, uh, a, a reference to Louis de Molina, uh, 16th century um, Catholic thinker, philosopher. Does God have to put us in the right environment for us then to freely exercise our will? Or does God have to do something deeper? Does he have to do reconstruction of the heart? Well, Joe, that brings us back to that initial point. Uh, apologetics is tied to theology. And, you know, apologetics is a challenging field. Um, I struggle to understand all the arguments uh, that somebody like Dave, Jeff, uh, Fuzz, and Hugh would give uh, scientifically. I'm not a trained scientist. Um, and I may, I may not be a specialist in other particular fields, but I, I think I think every apologist needs to strive to be a serious student of the Bible and a serious student of Christian theology. So that's kind of an overview of the apologetic enterprise. And Joe, what awaits us in the next show is to talk about some of the distinctive features of the RTB apologetic. All right, great. We'll look forward to that. Um, this is part one of two, so be sure to share the link with people uh, that uh, are in your circle. Let them know this is the first of two, and uh, they'll enjoy it and benefit from it, particularly people who might be new to this podcast or new to RTB. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Ken, you've often recommended uh, books on this podcast, and of course you have your own books that uh, people have commented on, and I just wanted to point out a couple of comments that have come in as a result of people reading your books. Here's one of them in particular, uh, God Among Sages. You got three comments on that book. Uh, Ken, God Among Sages is another excellent publication. All of your books are well-written and organized. Michael Interbartolo. Mm. So thank you for that comment, uh, Michael. Here's another one, God Among Sages is a superb book. Dr. Doug Grutice, Professor of Apologetics at Denver Seminary. Wow. I'm sure many of our listeners will know uh, that name, so thank you for that. And here's another one, I love the book God Among Sages because it gives dignity to other religions where dignity is due while maintaining the ultimate truth of Christ, James Acker. Wow. Well, that's another, another nice uh, comment there. So, Well, and, Joe, and I can't help but uh, say that when they say they're well-written, <laughs> you and uh, some of the other editors at RTB do a great service in, in helping me, uh, you know, you tighten down my reasoning. So I, I want to give credit where credit's due. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for uh, reading those books. We hope you find them valuable and that you're passing along what you're learning to others. Thanks for those comments and uh, questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. So keep those coming. We'll give you a shout out here on the 
podcast. It's going to wrap it up for this one for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.